0: We never really explained how we got here, so this is this is going to be the intro okay. now. So okay. I'll, 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 let's grab Sonya. Come here. Yeah. So, do you want to describe the situation here? How we got here, we got here where we're sitting. It'd be more poetic than Rick was. Ooh, he kind of gave try up. I'll my best here. He just said we're on top of a mountain.
1: Well, <laughs> there's a specific mountain, so we're on top of uh, Mount Solomon. And uh, how we got here is we approached a peak by helicopter, (laughs) which is not what uh, people usually do when they reach the summit.
0: And did we land the helicopter?
1: We did not (laughs) land the helicopter.
0: (laughs) So we call the hover exit, right? Yes. And then much to the despair of the hikers we met 15 minutes later... yes (laughs) (laughs) yes <laughs> <laughs> who walked for three hours to get here yeah how did you guys get here how long was your hike how come oh. we didn't see
1: you on the trail <laughs> oh we
0: landed about 10 meters from this this, this bench that we're sitting on right soft. now and yeah we're sitting on a bench that was put here a couple of years ago memorial bench and underneath it there's a, a geocache of notebooks of all the different people that have come from all over the world not 50 yards away from where likely a grizzly bear was digging up
1: ants <laughs>
0: earlier this morning or something <laughs>
1: hopefully not this morning <laughs> <laughs> recently. Re-
0: yeah recently. recently enough looking yeah. across uh
1: brule lake yeah. and uh black Cat mountain and more of a the jasper area and uh yeah
0: You're looking into the park
1: right yeah the park's straight ahead there you can yeah. see uh, i the corner right dropping off there
0: it's pretty awesome
1: yeah, can not complain. It's a pretty good job, really.
0: I really hope this audio works. <laughs> <laughs> if now you're just gonna have to come back. <laughs> it's been recording, but I don't know what it's gonna sound like. We'll see. You we got these ridiculous Sawyer beetles flying by yes. snapping their wings every other second, right? But I think it. yeah, I think mm. it'll add right to it, right? Supposed to be perfect. So Pristine,
1: Rick? Pristine, yeah. <laughs>
0: Hey guys, that was the intro. Pretty cool, hey? (laughs) Top of a mountain, recording a podcast. I had a lot of fun. It was a really cool day. I went out to Hinton and uh, we flew out from a helicopter and landed at uh, the top of Mount Solomon. And uh, yeah, we did a podcast up there. They were doing a bunch of work for the Mountain Legacy Project, which is a really cool project. They're trying to replicate survey photos from nearly 100 years ago. So there's a bunch of photos from the top of mountains where they're looking... Across the landscape And they're trying to replicate them So that they can see the differences in vegetation And landscape changes over time Which tells us a lot about management Fire regime, indigenous peoples Their role in the landscape as far as burning um, All kinds of stuff like that It was really, really awesome um, Really had a great time up there uh, The person you heard talking That was Sonia I'm sorry if I destroy your last name I never did ask you how to pronounce it Voicesu <laughs> I hope that's right. She was a she's a PhD candidate, uh, that's been helping Rick out. Rick Arthur is the other guy that that's going to be talking. You're gonna hear him talk right away. Um he's the the lead on the Mountain Legacy project and he's been doing it for I think uh roughly twenty years now. And it's a really, really cool project that provides some super interesting and unique insights into forest management and The environment and nature and and that kind of stuff. It's it's really, really interesting. Um, Yeah, we talked a lot about uh, cultural burning. So that's uh, indigenous peoples and their role in the landscape and how they used to burn for a multitude of reasons. We get into that. Uh, We talked about fire on the landscape, whether it's natural or prescribed um, or human-caused, I should say. Uh, We talked about... All kinds of different forest management issues. It was, it was more of a philosophical, I guess, but as well as he, Rick has a lot of knowledge that he uh, that he provided here. And it was really, really cool to see his thoughts on forest management and fire regimes and indigenous burning and all that kind of stuff. So I think you guys are really, 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 really going to like it. Please listen to the whole thing. It is awesome. Uh, one of my favorite ones I've ever done. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to try and do it again sometime. Hopefully, they uh, invite me back out next year, <laughs> and I can do it again because it was it was a blast. Um, yeah. So yeah, may as well uh, may as well continue on the uh, sponsors for this week are same three as always. Uh, Forest Resource Improvement Association of Alberta. Thanks a lot. Couldn't do this without you guys. Green Lake Forestry. Exact same thing. Could not. Do this without those two sponsors. And the third one is Damaged Timber. Damaged Timber is an apparel company in Edmonton. They're creating really cool clothing, uh, and they're providing 10% of all their sales goes towards a uh, scholarship for environmental science students. So uh, the first one's going to be going out in the fall here. Um, yeah, it's really cool. If you guys want to check out Damaged Timber, go to damagedtimber.com, put in your force Ten at checkout, and you can get 10% off. On top of everything. So, yeah, check them out. Really, really cool. Um, without any further screwing around, we can get right into the podcast and l- listen to Rick and Sonia. Mostly Rick. Sonia came in just at the end to kind of give a more poetic version of where we were at. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. I hope you guys like it. I know you'll like it. It was awesome. It was really awesome. Actually, before we do the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, um all that good stuff share it with your friends tell one friend about it go out there tell one friend about it it helps me out a lot please 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 thank you very much all right here we go which one of you guys wants to explain where we are maybe who's got their inner poet ready
2: okay all right (laughs) um (laughs) currently right up in the top of mount solomon And there were two surveyors that surveyed here, uh, Dowling in 1911 and uh, Miller in 1929. Uh, Both of them were working for the Dominion government at the time. And uh, they were part of a a broader survey that was done uh, creating the first topographic maps for the Canadian mountains in western Canada.
0: Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I never thought I'd be doing a podcast on the top of a mountain overlooking something like this. What's that lake called again?
2: That's Brule Lake over there in Brewell the town Lake. of Brule below. Uh, you can see the railway tracks that go through west to, to Jasper and also a spur line that goes north up to, to Grand Prairie now.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Like, this is ridiculous. I don't think there's ever been a podcast recorded in a better spot, actually. <laughs>
2: I wouldn't know, but we can, we can ask.
0: <laughs> um, so the Mountain Legacy Project... First of all, like some of the first pictures you guys had taken was I guess we should start explaining what the what the Mountain Legacy Project is yeah. and kind of what the how it started and yeah. all that.
2: It's, uh, the Mountain Legacy Project is a interdisciplinary project that is is taking the photos from our early surveyors. Uh, first of all, our the early surveyors had in Canada had created and used this unique phototopographic survey system and uh meaning what what does that mean <laughs> it, it means they would go out and they would they would use their survey instruments to to record data and and take survey shots to record those and create those first topographic maps but to supplement that they they brought box cameras with them and at peaks such as this where they had a good vista they would take photographs and then use those photographs with the focal plane technique to help draw the first topographic maps what it, they left behind inadvertently because uh, they were using this system from the uh 1860s with the international boundary survey down in, at at the, the US border and uh right up to the early 19 mid 1950s okay but what they left behind inadvertently i guess is is a collection of of photographs that are were systematically taken across the landscape so Dowling in in 1910 and 11 surveyed in this area. Surveyed the the entire um, uh, Athabasca corridor, uh, going out through into Jasper from entrance and uh, a little bit north and and south as well. and And uh, Miller was here in in 1929 and surveyed uh, going north from here. So, they, they captured uh, similar landscapes in different time frames. Mm. And when we take uh, our, the retakes or repeats, uh, we can often see significant ecological change. Uh, and even in some cases, here we've got uh, Dowling in 1911, Miller in 1929. Uh, when you look at, at the details in the, in the high resolution imagery that they took, uh, you can pick out the changes at that time uh Dowling probably much more pronounced uh, in some of the images some of the indigenous burning patterns that had occurred for for probably hundreds if of years if not millennia uh and uh even some of the the people that were riding trails here say out of the black cat ranch have been telling me that a lot of the meadows that they used to ride on are now heavily overgrown part of that is, is, is just that the indigenous people were keeping those meadows, uh, open through the use of frequent fire.
0: Right. And they're a prescribed fire. They're burning or cultural, they call it cultural burning. or It something was cultural burning. Right.
2: Uh, it, it, they it burned with intent. Uh, Henry Lewis, uh, had documented over 70 reasons why indigenous people were burning. Yeah. And, um, you know, burning strictly for habitat or for trail corridors are only a couple of them. They, they used it for berry rotation. They used it for, to protect medicinal plants. They also used it to to create habitat for medicinal plants. Um, they used it for, in sometimes cases of, of war, and other times... Um, uh, very specifically for for ceremonial pr- purposes, yeah. and there's even a few recordings of using it for for recreational purposes. Oh, really? Like what yeah. would they be doing with it? Um, for
0: recreational purposes, just want to see big flames. Fid- in Fiddler's
2: <laughs> journals, they, he talked of, of a camp that was set up where they stacked uh, a brush up against uh, a conifer tree and and lit it until it crowned out or candled up, <laughs> and and uh, it was part of the, the evening's entertainment, I guess.
0: Yeah yeah well, they had a good understanding of fuel. It wasn't like they were you know newbies at at burning right obviously they did it a lot they They probably know probably could have taught us a lot about it i'm sure
2: absolutely mm-hmm. uh fire is a very very complicated tool uh it is the use of fire is one of the defining features of 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 mankind of humans yeah and and it's fire that that changed and helped humans uh. Evolved from from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. Yeah, and so we've now got recorded history of early hominids using fire at least 1.8 million years ago. Certainly in North America, when when uh, uh, when people were using it 10,000 years ago, they were well well versed in 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 the use of fire. By that time, yeah, they were yeah. and and uh, knew exactly what they were doing, what they were burning for. Uh, they were looking at fire intensities, fire severities, looking for very specific effects. Mm-hmm. And, and it's important to understand that that different people within those cultures burn for different reasons. Yeah. So um, the women would burn for, for berry crop rotation, as an example, and and perhaps for, for burning willow areas so they could get willow fawns for, for baskets. Oh, okay, yeah. Um,
0: I imagine they used willow fawn for, for a lot of different things. There, it's a pliable wood that, yeah.
2: All kinds of, of different uses. Yeah. Uh the men uh would use it for hunting. Uh there's uh Lewis had recorded uh in in speaking with an elder, he'd he'd uh asked him when, how, why he was burning in some of his interviews, but one of the one of the elders through an interpreter had, had said that he was he would burn in early spring, he would burn in riparian areas, he would burn the willow areas, and then he'd hunt moose afterwards. The yeah. question came was how soon do you hunt moose afterwards and it was about 2 hours. <laughs> yeah. And and Lewis was was pretty intrigued by that so he asked asked more questions and and the elder came back and said well I learned this from my grandfather my great-grandfather that uh moose in early spring are are lacking certain minerals and nutrients and they they can't get it from green willow but if the willow is charred it's, it's really easily for them to digest it. So they huh. smell the burning smoke of the willow and they come to the willow. Hence, Interesting. Hence two hours. Lewis noted all that, goes back to the U of A and speaking to some biologists who were doing some research. And what they had found was that moose in that region were uh, uh, a little shy on on magnesium and magnesium is 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 available in large quantities in in green willow but not easily digested right once you char it however it becomes readily digestible and absorbed into the system <laughs> so you've That's you've got amazing. it is but you've got it's it's fascinating because you've got two different cultures two different languages two different types of science and neither will talk to each other and neither respect each other but still come to the same conclusions over time yeah one being uh our peer-reviewed science where it's basically circular in nature where, where we ask a question and we poke at that question from different different angles until we come up with a solution. Yeah. Or a traditional uh, generational science where where lessons are learned and passed on and refined over time. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it's still the same conclusions. Yeah. And, and it speaks highly to uh, how evolved... Uh, the, the indigenous populations were they were not a primitive stone Age people as as was taught when I was in back in school way back when but a very very sophisticated culture and very knowledgeable in the use of fire mm-hmm. um, going back to the actually using fire it's so complicated that no one person in 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 the tribe could ever understand and know how to use fire for everything right. So in the Blackfoot as an example they had different societies the different societies would have different reasons for using fire and not necessarily everyone in the in the society would be uh, able to use fire they were if they didn't have an aptitude they just didn't didn't use fire and that was that was fine right but they recorded all of that in in song and and oh, passed okay. that on generationally
0: right cuz a lot of their knowledge is passed it's, through through stories through, yeah. and through yeah through song's vocal history yeah, yeah
2: yeah so, so you know there's there's a lot of, lot of history that's there that we have to uncover, but but importantly, I think uh, in today's world, uh, as we look across our, our forested landscapes, whether it's in a, a working forest and a forest management agreement area, or especially if it's in a parks or a protected area, we have to understand how these ecosystems were formed and how they were managed historically. And, and if we want to maintain populations, we have to understand for wildlife and habitat, we have to understand what the dynamic was that created that habitat. Yeah. Uh, too often, uh, especially, uh, a lot of our, our early, um, uh, early managers creating these national parks, uh, John Muir is, as an excellent example, mm-hmm. uh, Looked across these landscapes and marveled at them, and, and he was extremely eloquent in, in his writing, yeah. uh, but did not grasp that that it was the native people that he saw in the landscape and their ancestors that created that landscape and, and its prolific uh, habitat. Yeah, And we're losing it today because it's not not so much from fire suppression as fire exclusion, where we are not burning at the right time and in the right place, to maintain that habitat.
0: It's an interesting point because I think you're right. People look at, like in conservation terms, right? People look at, oh, we want to get back to, like we were speaking earlier in the day, talking about wilderness and pristine and nature, natural, right? All those words, right? Yep. And you're right. We, we think that, oh, well, back in 1800s or 19 early 1900s, that was pristine wilderness untouched by man and everything was well balanced and worked perfectly and we came in and we ruined it. Through industry and other things, when the the truth of the matter is that those landscapes, even then, were, were were shaped and managed by indigenous people, right? Like by by human beings.
2: Humans have been on the landscape for for thousands of years, mm-hmm. at least thirteen thousand years in in this immediate area, mm-hmm. and, and across Alberta. So, to to suggest that that they're natural, as in without human intervention, is 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 asinine. Yeah. It really is, and I know uh, uh, anthropologists even to the 1950s and 1960s that late were still saying that. Well, yeah, but they were a primitive Stone Age people, and they really couldn't grasp uh, landscape level management. Well,
0: it just feels like an assumption that they made, kind of thing. It wasn't. It wasn't based off of any evidence. It was just kind of like, well, they must not have known much because they didn't have central heating.
2: <laughs> well, that, or, or they didn't have 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 iron and and uh you know certainly humanity as a whole if we get a better tool to use uh every one of us drops it yeah. nobody keeps a pocket watch anymore except you're nostalgic and, and for that matter no one has a wristwatch anymore it's they they've got their 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 clock based on their phone
0: i got a few friends who will fight you when you say words like that yeah <laughs> they're watch people but it, but it's
2: it's it's changes in 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 technology uh for and uh one of one of my uh one of my friends up there, he's he's uh he's a member of the the Fort Chippewa and Cree band. But uh and for right, people who
0: don't know the Fort Chip is way, way up north and yeah, yeah,
2: it's in northeastern Alberta, just on the north side of Lake Athabasca. Yeah. But uh uh right by Third Lake, uh he looked one down down one day, he's there and, and here and uh in it's a little pile of arrowheads. Yeah. And and he looked at him. He picked them up, but but the story there was most likely that it's the the beginning of the fur trade, and somebody has just gotten a rifle, mm. and 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 now they're, they're arrows and 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 bow is no longer valued, and they dropped them on the spot, just and, abandoned. And carried it. On. So we 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 always pick up new tools. I wonder,
0: if, I wonder if that guy or, or, or woman <laughs> regretted that decision, knowing that, you know, eventually you run out of ammunition, got to go back and find more. Meanwhile, with bow and arrow, right, they had the ability to create their own ammunition. Uh, so maybe, maybe generations later. <laughs> and I imagine later, they were really, really damn good at shooting
2: that thing too. Yeah, but maybe <laughs> generations later when they lost the skill of making bows and arrows, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps. But certainly at the time, it was a pretty big step up. Yeah and and uh you know we continue to adapt technology and and we'll continue to use it whatever whatever race you are, whatever your background is as as humans
0: well and I, I yeah I also think it's important that we do because we get better and better and more we get more understanding and all kinds of things right but yeah it's 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 sad to think that we've uh we kind of
2: the danger is i think that we make make assumptions in this case of the peoples that were here before us. And their quote, lack of knowledge and lack of understanding. Yet they were they were highly knowledgeable and and fantastic. Uh, Get this land, right up in your face there. Yeah, yeah. fantastic there land managers because they were uh, they were burning uh, and using fire to maintain habitat. That was a large part of it. So yeah. they're on an ungulate economy, mm-hmm. and and they need really good habitat.
0: Do you want to explain that a little bit? Why. You explain the moose situation, right? Yeah. So maybe can you explain, touch on a couple other species why why burning would be
3: beneficial? Okay. Right? Uh
2: Let's look at sharp-tailed grouse and 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 uh, for the Blackfoot, in in their language, they refer to to sharp-tailed grouse as fire chickens. <laughs> and 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 uh, it's partially because they used to see them in and around burned areas or recently burned burned areas a lot. And and uh, when early settlers were were uh, inhabiting this area, they'd go hunting, and in their journals, there there's references to going hunting and coming back with. A, if you didn't come back with a, a wagon full of grouse, it wasn't a good hunt. Yeah, that's how prolific they were. And today, uh, in many areas, the species is threatened. Yeah, and you have to ask, what is the big change? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it was was the the large landscapes that were being grazed by by literally millions of bison. Yeah, and in other cases, uh, the use of fire. So, so think of of what chickens like to do. They like to peck and scratch. Mm-hmm. If you have a heavy grass mat uh, out on that that landscape, that's habitat loss for those birds.
0: Do they do uh, the sharp tail grouse? They require the same. uh 'cause I know, like um, rough grouse, right? They require the rocks. They got to get the rocks in their yep. crop in order to.
2: To help digest, digest and yeah, grind yeah. up. So I'm guessing the, the very similar, the but yeah. but what they're doing is they're picking and scratching for insects and and seed, right? That's fallen mm. on the ground. And with a heavy grass mat, they can't get it. So you lose habitat. Yeah. Also, uh, their leks or mating areas were on low rises, and many of those are now overgrown. Yeah. So they no longer have those. And and I suspect it's similar to to sage growth, And perhaps we should be looking at some of those habitat areas and maybe reintroducing fire.
0: Yeah.
3: It
2: terrifies
0: have, people to think about reintroducing fire into into quote unquote right natural well, wilderness no, no, areas. <laughs>
2: that, but also the fear of fire and 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 it escaping. So it has to be managed very carefully in of today's course. terms. And 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 the type of fire that we're putting on the landscape is is also critical. So mm-hmm. so two descriptors of fire fire intensity, referring to how hot it's burning. So whether it's a smoldering ground fire creeping along. Small surface fire or gets up into that full roaring high intensity crown fire that's rolling through and terrifying people as and when you see it on t v yep uh but the other part of a the, description of the is is fire severity, and fire severity is the actual impact that it has on the land itself mm-hmm. so if you if you you can have a a high intensity crown fire, but low severity effects if you've got sufficient ground moisture mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that type of burning would, would be generally isolated. So you might get a uh, a spring fire burning up a south-facing slope at just the right time of day where you get some radiant heat from the sun and it crowns out, but there's still sufficient soil moisture there. It's not impacting it. Right. Uh, back in the day, most of those south-facing slopes and west-facing slopes were, were kept open through frequent fire. So they didn't have the heavy conifer on it. Uh, Both natural
0: were, fire and, and, do you think, cultural Mostly
2: well. cultural burning. Cultural burning, yeah. Yeah. And, and there, uh, the timing of, of burning specifically is, is often in early spring, snow's receding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those sunny south facing slopes or the valley bottoms are open. Mm-hmm. So you, you burn off the valley bottom to, to keep your travel corridors open, it races up those sunny uh, south facing and west facing slopes, keeps them open as well. Yeah. And you see that right from Wilmore all the way down to Waterton. Yeah. On these on these historic photos, yeah,
0: yeah, it's. I I think it'd be pretty sobering for some people to see some of these photos, right? Because I think, yeah, people just think that that this was always treed, right? Like what we're um, looking at right now, we're looking at like how many hundreds of square kilometers of forest yeah. right now, right? And we can see that a large portion of it right now has been managed, yeah. But there's I, it's, there's plenty of habitat and there's and there's there's lots of intact like what's the, another word, right? Intact forest, like another. Well, right, so but it's. I think it'd be interesting for people to know that this wasn't always the case. There was a lot more plains, and there was a lot more
2: well, we diversity can, in habitat. Yeah, right? Absolutely. You you look across the the landscape here. The valley bottom here was was quite open because of of reuse of frequent fire.
0: And you know this because you have literal pictures from 1911 or whatever yeah, <laughs> that uh, show it, you it.
2: And and like I said, we can go right across landscapes from right the far end of Wilmer all the way down to Water, and you see evidence of of the frequent use of fire by an indigenous people. Yeah. Other species that, that they were burning for, it's surprising because you can see it a lot of these changes on the landscape shaped by our uh, sub ecoregions, believe it or not. Yeah. So each of our sub ecoregions has a different fire regime to it. Of course. And it also had it varied in the in the amount of, of frequent fire that was put on by indigenous people.
0: So sub regions... Uh, just for people who don't know, is it based off of elevation and and I guess topography, right? Yeah. So, so if yeah. we if
2: we drop in elevation, we get out into the into the plains. We have the short grass prairies and long grass prairies. Uh, getting towards the forested areas and the foothills, we have the montane forest ecosystem, mm-hmm. more one of the lower ones within that. But lots of deciduous, lots of open grassland, or at least used to be, and now we're losing it because many of these areas is, are are left undisturbed because uh, they're in parks and protected areas, and and we're driven by natural as that that planning mechanism instead of looking at historic disturbance patterns and how were these ecosystems created, and mm-hmm. we need to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, a really tough one too. Now that yeah. we've got people riddled throughout the forest, right? It's yep. not that's, Well, that's everyone's got one. different
2: values, and mm-hmm. but but if, if the bottom line is is regardless of what perspective you come from. We all have that intrinsic value for that forested area, mm-hmm. and we want the best for it. So, if Absolutely. we want the best for it, then we we've got to recognize that, in many cases, we need we need disturbance brought back into the landscape. Well, I think that's exactly, how do we do that is the question.
0: Well, I think that's exactly one of the major problems, right? As you say, that we have this natural connection with the forest type thing, and and we want to be able for it to exist into future generations and all of that. But I think most people don't know what that means, right? They hear those, those buzzwords like old growth, and they think, well, everything should be old growth.
2: And we, like, we, you know, when you mention old growth, almost everyone will, will, will put their hand on their chest and go, oh, yeah. we need more old growth. Yeah. Uh, today, as a result, a direct result of of, of fire exclusion or, or not frequently burning intentionally, mm-hmm. uh, we have far more older forests on the landscape and far more homogenous forests on the landscape than we ever did.
0: And that's, I've heard that from many people. That's, and, that seems to be the common thread. I've, no, and I've heard are someone has that.
2: We are losing biodiversity. And biodiversity is really important uh, for many reasons, but that doesn't necessarily mean biodiversity comes from an undisturbed landscape. In mm-hmm. fact, it's the opposite. Uh, you create disturbances within that, that landscape, and, and biodiversity is really driven by age classes. So if you have, have young, recently disturbed forests, you have. You have different plant species coming up and different different animals using it mm-hmm. and if you if you have uh areas that are growing up into to more millow, willow and shrub high value for for browse material for ungulates and and perhaps as you get into the the older uh forests uh you know very unique ecosystems but historically on the landscape very very small percentage yeah going back to um uh, Our sub-ecoregions. So the montane saw lots and lots of frequent fire. Then you get into uh, the lower foothills, which which is you'll see still quite a bit of deciduous in it, but but more conifer, and still quite a bit of frequent burning, but a little bit less fire on the landscape than you do in the in the Mm -hmm. montane. Then you get into the upper foothills, and it's mostly conifer, and and even less. Uh, burning, but but it's it seems to be focused on specific areas. Then you get into the subalpine, and suddenly there's lots more burning again. Mm-hmm. And and you see evidence of that because in the historic photos, uh, there's no black sticks, in the, so the forest isn't growing up because uh-huh. uh, it's being burnt on a frequent basis. So you you can see these these grassland meadows and these subalpine meadows. Which are not natural, but they were created and maintained through the use of fire, mm-hmm. frequent use of fire, and again, low-intensity fire, low-severity impacts. But just removing that 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 forest cover growth, so that the grass and and browse species are are there for the sheep and elk.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: In some cases now, we're we're losing sheep populations, and I believe in part because of. Uh, of the forest glow, growth creeping up and 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 enclosing and, and covering a lot of the areas that were traditionally open through frequent fire. Right. Uh, less less open habitat means better hiding cover for cougars. Yeah. Which are really decimating the the sheep population in some areas. Mm-hmm. And also the sheep are are living closer and closer together so they're coughing on each other and spreading pneumonia. Mm. So we now really they're c- getting pneumonia.
0: Yep. Wow. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Why wouldn't they get pneumonia? People get yeah. pneumonia. They're biological creatures the same as us. Yeah. yeah.
2: And the other is parasites that, that, uh, by, by using fire, you're, you're, you're charring the ground and you're killing parasites that, that get dropped in, in, mm-hmm. in, in their feces and, and, and picked up again in the grass. Yeah. Um, that brings us to another, another species mm-hmm. that was controlled was, was ticks. Oh yeah. And, and, uh, some of the prescribed burns i've done in the past we go on the next day and we find areas where, where sheep have been rolling in the ash or elk have been rolling in the ash yeah. and i suspect it's to 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 change the ph of their soil to to uh, impact the ticks that are bothering them
0: the ph of the of their of their they change their the fur, pH, you mean. they
2: change the ph of their skin, their skin by yeah. rolling in the ash
0: yeah that makes sense that's crazy that that would yeah, there's so many like small details like that that a lot of people wouldn't think of right but but it's...
2: that and that's that's what I'm saying is the the indigenous use of fire over time was the knowledge was phenomenal mm-hmm. and and fire is something that that to to understand it you have to use it. Stephen Pine had said and he's a historian, but he also said uh to use it wisely, you have to understand it. So it's 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 learn to burn and and burn to learn.
0: I'm pretty sure that's on the back of your shirt you're wearing right now, As isn't a matter it? of fact, it is. <laughs> yeah. I just thought of that as we were talking. <laughs> I think I, I literally just read it about 12, like right before we started this. And, yeah, it made 20. sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I was like, yeah, oh, okay. Right on. Yeah. No, it's. Yeah, I think I think this like this project specifically is it's unique is it not? Like it's not that no one else is really doing this from as far back. I mean, you have photos from 1963 I think or something. Or 18, 1863. 1863. Sorry. Yeah.
2: So we go back a long long ways and what it is is it's the world as far as we know. It's mm-hmm. the world's largest collection of of systematic landscape photography. Yeah. So a surveyor would come into an area and he would have multiple stations uh so just looking over here, we've got, got stations that were on, on Black Cat Mountain, on Solomon Mountain, on, on the mountains to the north and to the south, uh, right into the rocks and, and further back in around Athabasca Lookout. Mm-hmm. So they're they're looking at, at this landscape from der- various perspectives, uh, and, it, and it allows you to look in detail, because these are very high-resolution images, uh, of what the landscapes looked like. Yeah. Now, the only other place in the world that we know of where this system was used was in India, in the Himalayas, in preparation for Edmund Hillary's climb. There's a Canadian connection to that. (laughs) Uh, One of the founders of the Alpine Club of Canada and one of the the prominent uh, users of of this system and who helped refine it was Arthur Oliver Wheeler, A.O. Wheeler. Okay. So if you go to Banff, you'll see the Wheeler Hut amongst other things that that pay recognition and homage to him. But he was a, a surveyor that, that was surveying in, in the Elbow and, and the Highwood areas in, the, in, in around 1895. He went on and surveyed the entire uh, provincial boundary survey between BC and Alberta and uh, a number of noted achievements. His son became a, a surveyor, or Oliver Wheeler, and Oliver ended up in India as the Surveyor General of India. <laughs> and imported this technology and used it in preparation for Edmund Hillary's climb.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a crazy resource to be able to tap into because, I mean, I can't even imagine the number of debates and arguments that are going on about what the forest should look like, right? I mean, there's there's so much research being done in Alberta alone, let alone the rest of the world around what disturbance patterns and this kind of stuff, right? So it's to be able to tap into a resource like looking at a photo from early 1900s or late 1800s and see, oh, that's what it looked like right there. and, and, we, can, and we can point to it and know for a fact that that's what it was.
2: And in some cases, we've got um, surveyors who who were back at the same stations over time. Mm. So we have. Just
0: uh, bring this up again.
2: Yeah, yeah we have Wheeler in uh, in the Highwood uh, area, and and uh, in 1898, 99. Uh, before the 1910 fires. And then we've got a guy by the name of Nichols in that area in 1916 after the 1910 fires. And then there's a, a big fire in 1936 and a guy by the name of Nid there in 1948. So these are major events on the landscape that were, were they're historic fires. Uh, and, uh, Part of our history, but but significant land changes. So mm-hmm. we see development and changes over over these ecosystems over time. Mm-hmm. I've got one station, Sentinel Mountain, uh, or Mount Sentinel, and and I think there was four surveyors over the years. So so now we have a, a an image progression over the last hundred or so years, hundred and twenty years of how these landscapes are changing. Yeah, no,
0: it's it's super unique and it's super valuable. And I, I yeah, I just hope that enough forest managers are looking at this kind of stuff to help understand and, and, you know what I mean, Re- realize
2: if the difference it makes. If you're a fire manager, you want to look at these images and, and look for historic burn patterns, especially in the mountain regions because uh, these fires are driven by topography. Yeah. And you're going to see how those fires spread and, and move and and also what burns and what doesn't. Yeah. If you're a, a biologist, you uh, you really want to have a look at these photos because you want to understand what habitat looked like back in that day mm-hmm. and look at the changes today and, and maybe recognize that, wow, we're losing a lot of habitat. Our species are, are having trouble, our, our key species, ungulate species, elk are having trouble because we no longer have the habitat to support them. It's overgrown. But old
0: growth, Rick, old growth. It's good, more old growth. <laughs> it is valuable. And, but, but you'll
2: also see old growth in very unique places. Uh, down in Cananastis, uh, at Canonastis Lookout, if you go over the east side of the lookout, there's a stand there that was established in in, uh, in 1715 and hasn't burned since then. But Brad Hawks' uh, research in there, when he, he did a, a fire history analysis, mm-hmm. he found that, that numerous fires over the, over the last umpteen years, I think he goes back to 1715, but from 1715 to 1920, on average, uh, a large fire, he defines it as, as a I believe it was 1,000 acres or greater, Uh, burned on average in that area within about a 21-year average. The lowest return interval was about 9 or 11 years, going from memory, and the longest return interval was 37 years. Right. And that's from 1715 to 1920. And in 1920, the last major fire event occurred. Since then, in that area, we have not had a large fire event to present day. Uh. So, picture, years, yeah. picture the changes over time without out that, and and you know these fires didn't burn the same areas. They, so you have younger growth coming up in some cases. You have have uh, older growth. You've got old growth stands that that are maintained just by location. They're on the east facing slope. They're northeast facing slope, perhaps little moisture, more moisture regime, cooler site. Uh, much less chance of it burning, unless you've got really, really severe mm-hmm. conditions. And if you've got the conditions that severe, then everything goes. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Yeah, and I, I don't know what it would take to get the general public to understand that this age distribution thing and diversity of habitat is necessary, right? They just, it's not their fault, right? They, they, they're just going with popular... Culture or whatever it says you right, but it's I don't know what it would take to to get people to understand that there was more plains and there was
2: these these landscapes were fracturized and and yeah. fracturization is is something that's considered to be the bane at this time, mm-hmm. so you look across uh these these broader forests that are now mature across our eastern slopes mm-hmm and 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 the perception of this is this is natural, this is beautiful, this is wonderful but our our human perception is really our forecasting ability only goes about to the end of our noses <laughs> yeah. you know what we see in <laughs> front of us is the way it has been always mm-hmm. in our minds and and the way it should always remain, yeah, and the reality is 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 our landscapes are constantly changing and constantly evolving and and one of the biggest changes is. Is we've come as Europeans to this continent with some very romantic notions. Yeah, uh,
0: it's the idea of the shifting baseline, right? Every yeah. every generation thinks that the way it was when they were young is the way it should still be,
2: and always was, and always will be, and yeah. and and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. It's just not reality. Uh, that is a
0: huge impact, I think, too. The, the, the you know what I mean? That shifting baseline idea, where nobody really looks back before that or before that, or like what like yeah. what you're doing, you know, nearly 200 years ago, right? So it's...
2: Well, that's the beauty of it. You might get a photo that was taken in, in 1898 or 1899, mm-hmm. but when you look at that photo, you can see a, a disturbance history that goes back at least another 200 years. Mm-hmm. And and if you if you learn to interpret that and, and apply it to the landscapes today through the repeat photography, then you can start to see ecological change, start to understand well, how much habitat have we lost over time? Why is our elk population crossing? Why are our sheep populations c- collapsing? Mm-hmm. And maybe it even changes the way we, we think about about uh, the way the indigenous people live. They certainly weren't uh, just uh, simply nomadic uh, people that wandered across the landscape. They they were going from point to point with, with intent. They mm-hmm. moved to follow wildlife or they moved into areas where wildlife had had a chance to regenerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, from habitat that they had renewed previously mm-hmm. in the decade or or three decades before, um, it, you know some of this has even given me a different perspective of of bison management, so we think of these these massive large homes uh, roaming herds of bison, but we see some pretty unique areas whether there 's the bow corridor, the jumping pound uh, uh, even the highwood range as an example, and perhaps down here where a valley would be kept wide open. Uh, there's strong, strong evidence, a uh, very visible evidence of of burning along the the bull corridor mm-hmm. uh, into from from Canmore into into Banff.
0: So I imagine it'd be kept open from not only the burning but just the traffic from the bison themselves. I mean Well,
2: if you were if you were an indigenous group and you had an opportunity to to herd some bison up into an enclosed valley and set your camp up on on the, on the outside edge of that. Mm-hmm. The bison have good grass, so they've got good food, good grazing. They've got open landscapes, so they can see the four-legged predators coming, mm-hmm. and they've got good water sources. They're going to be relatively happy and content to stay there. Mm-hmm. You set up your camp in the Lactazark area or, or the Deadman Flats area, and and it's a narrow point, so the bison are going to stay up valley. Yeah. And know. when you need fresh meat, you go up and knock off a bison and, and bring it back home. mm mm-hmm
0: and you think yeah. arguably that this this valley that we're sitting in right now or staring at may have been they've been similar
2: at one point uh, if you go into into jasper yeah. uh the, the entire valley that, that's now turning red, the Athabasca Valley, was yeah. was pretty much an open grassland maintained through frequent fire. That's right. You have a photo from, what, what was that, 1908 or something? 1915 was when Morris Bridgeland surveyed that area. And actually for the Mountain Legacy Project, uh, that's the first area that was was, was photographed or re-photographed. Okay. Uh, Eric Higgs and uh, and one of his students came in. She was doing her... I think it was a master's or PhD. I can't recall offhand. Uh, Dr. Ramella, and uh, uh, they they hiked to every every station that he was at. They they photographed him, and they did a comparative analysis of the change. Yeah. And her paper is remarkable. Yeah. You know, and and should be much more well read and much more used in in management. Yeah. Um, allowing the forest to grow without disturbance. Uh, we see significant changes, and now the entire valley is is turning red from mountain pine beetle. Um, probably because we have far more, far much more mature lodgepole pine on our landscapes than we ever have had historically. Mm-hmm. And in areas where there never ever was a mature lodgepole pine because it was maintained for for other habitat types.
0: So if you could just uh, paint like a visual or an, aud- an audible picture <laughs> for people for of the Jasper Valley there, right? So right now it's not this valley, obviously the one in Jasper, yeah. more with a. It's uh. Well, let's, it's it's covered in pine, right? It's, it's yeah. all pine, and it's but, all red and dead pine from the pine beetle. So in nineteen fifteen, from your photo, you have what did it look like in that photo? Is compared to now? What is the percentage difference in in forest cover and other kinds of stuff?
2: Oh, well, picture yourself driving through the from the the Jasper Park Gate to Jasper itself, and and you drive along the highway it's a scenic flat valley uh mountains rising up on either side there's there's low rolling hills um all of that was pretty much open because of frequent fire there were scattered large douglas fir mm-hmm. uh douglas fir a species that adapted to to low intensity fire it's got mm-hmm. a very heavy thick bark yeah so uh it survived those those early spring burns um uh, and perhaps that might be an area too that Indigenous people were driving Bison into, and once they're into that that park area and that valley area, they're pretty secure. Yeah. Uh, today, uh, without frequent fire uh, and a lack of disturbance on the landscape, any any of the pine that's seeded in or spruce that's seeded in has grown up to to full full maturity. So, you have uh, a massive loss of of forage. Landscape well, or... yeah, the landscape and its, its, its use for habitat mm-hmm. has significantly deteriorated over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there will be, arguably, there were areas of of, of, of cover, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's for thermal cover or hiding, hiding cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in mind that a lot of the hiding cover wasn't just suitable for ungulates, it was also suitable for predators. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and the more, now that we have these, these fully enclosed forests, the amount of browse that's out there has dropped significantly uh even along the 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 flats there by by the Athabasca River uh there's a spot called Mushroom Flats locally known and it's from the the willow that's that's really grown over and and from a distance it looks like large uh, mushrooms oh <laughs> how it got that way is from the ungulates browsing on it and as it grew up and and, and started to overhanging they would reach up stand on their hind legs <laughs> trying to nip and and, and browse this right and, uh, and created that that shape uh, historically it would have burned, so it was fresh succulent growth to so provide continuously yeah habitat a good suitable food uh, sources for those species mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. And people might argue what maybe what did it look like a hundred years before that was it I imagine it was different then too, right I, mean, I suspect no, it was no?
2: frequent fire that it was probably maintained as an open grassland probably for mm-hmm. millennia, yeah, more of a savanna type 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 environment rather right. than a, a fully enclosed coniferous forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, through that, that use of fire, uh, over time, uh, soils change because uh, you're changing the, the, the cover. You, you hope you're probably going to get less acidity over time, uh, certainly more ash in it. Uh, different plant growth because uh, a lot of species like open sunlight. Uh, once it becomes enclo- enclosed with a full conifer forest, uh, it changes to more of an mossy understory or, or a bearberry type of of and the grasses can no longer compete mm-hmm. they 're lost and and you lose a lot of that high valuable species yeah uh, rough fescue is an interesting grass species that that is certainly a concern in southern alberta for for uh, trying to protect uh, the rough rough fescue grasslands mm-hmm. and rangelands yep uh because it 's a shrinking resource. But, in those montane forest ecosystems, and specifically within some of our parks and protected areas, if we aren't disturbing those, then it's converting over to aspen and into and to pine, and we're losing it yeah it is a it is a and I'll use this term this once it is a natural process without <laughs> disturbance. But these landscapes—you know have, this is in a
0: recording, right? I can I can bring this up next.
2: Yeah, but these <laughs> these landscapes were maintained through frequent fire, and the ecosystems that developed were maintained through frequent fire. And I think we have to rethink the use of fire by by humans over time. Yeah, and how much fire was on the landscape, and how many species adapted over time to humans using fire. Yeah. Especially and,
0: considering we've been here for 10,000 years since glaciation. And right? we
2: stopped using fire, and what impact is that now having on a number of our species?
0: Mm-hmm. We're a part of the ecosystem. Right? The were, indigenous people were a part of the ecosystem.
2: Absolutely. And and and, and bringing some of uh, the romantic area notions that we have of, of you know, this this uh, Eden found as an example, you'll see in some of our early documents and and. And uh, some of the descriptions that that some of our early explorers find, and and it's like Paradise Lost has been found, mm-hmm. uh, but it was maintained for generations through through indigenous people yeah. creating those habitats and landscapes. So you could ride unimpeded, uh, whether it's in the tall oaks in the eastern seaboard or or across the the, the montane plains and 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 uh, just the odd heavy mature Douglas fir or, or maybe lots of them, but it was open grown underneath them yeah. or even go down into California. The California redwoods used to be wide open underneath them again yeah. through frequent fire. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating problem that I think we we run into a lot in, in like academia, right? Is, the, is, is how do you educate
2: the public into these kind of issues, right? So well, it it comes to also having to educate academia. <laughs> yeah, that as well, and yeah. and and that goes for a variety of of different, uh, different disciplines. It could be. It certainly applies to forest managers, but and foresters, but it also applies to biologists and naturalists and and uh, ecologists, conservationists, and, and, yeah. and anybody who's out there trying to 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 look at these landscapes and value them.
0: Well, everyone has a romantic viewpoint, like you said, right? Everybody wants, I think everyone's coming from the right perspective. There's nobody out there that I think that wants to just, well, except for maybe Trump, maybe he wants to turn everything into a parking lot and profit, but <laughs> but I don't think anybody really wants that, right? Everybody has this idea of they want they want the wolves and they want the trees and they want the caribou and the elk and they want this to exist. And the question is, how do we do that? And everyone has differing views on how to achieve, Right. And I think you are uniquely qualified in the world, I would say, to speak to the past and historical truths of what the forest looked like, right? Considering the amount of experience you've had, you know, traveling these mountains and these Rockies for, for how many years now? And really being able to see the difference. And I wonder if if you could, if you had a magic wand, you were you were overlord. What would you do? What would you say we would change for forest management to try and achieve a more, in your opinion anyways, a more sustainable, more, again, the naughty word, natural, well, <laughs> historically I think, natural?
2: I think let's let's look at, at a variety of values. Mm-hmm. And they aren't necessarily conflicting with each other. Right. Uh, elk habitat is an example. So if we start managing for elk habitat, does that mean that we can't manage for, for forest industry? Mm-hmm. Or if we... Want to manage for caribou, does that mean that all industry is is verboten? and i and I think that yeah, some people they'd say, yeah absolutely a mm-hmm. lot of people are saying that's the sole source and sole cause and 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 I'm looking at the photos in in some of these these parks and protected areas I see some some really wide open spaces that today are heavily filled in to, with with conifers so south facing and west facing slopes that that were grasslands are now mature pine, yeah uh wolves of course are predacious on on caribou and we're talking about, about about well what 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 do wolves need they're after the moose and if they can't get the moose they get the caribou mm-hmm. and and but the reality is is there's far more hiding cover for these predators than there ever was before making those kills a lot easier mm-hmm. and is that a factor that's happening and if it is then that points to a lack of disturbance on the landscape that throws a wrench in the whole and that's anthropogenic a, disturbance
0: yeah. linear disturbance idea, right?
2: It yeah, I'm not saying that those are, are are invalid, but I think we have to look at the broader issue of of, of broader landscape and say how much has our landscape changed mm-hmm. and is this having an impact on the on the collapse of our our uh, many of our wildlife species. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it is. Yeah. And I think we're missing the boat and and have been for a long time and mm-hmm. we've got to change that approach. So what would you do? I would bring a lot more fire back into the landscape, but it it Small scale it, burning kind uh, of thing you start with small scale because if you you can't go and and just uh, drop a match on a, a south facing slope historically, if it was wide open grassland well you know in in the in the springtime when the snows recede, the grass is cured you've got sun burning on it it's a it burns very easily mm-hmm. uh, and it'll race up that slope it'll hit the tree line which still has snow and moisture in it, and it stops dead and goes out mm-hmm. and you could do that across the uh across the boreal and if you look at at place names that are out there whether it's big prairie high prairie little prairie grand prairie bison prairie buffalo prairie and i could go on and on moose prairie of the different prairie names they're descriptors of these these landscapes that were maintained through frequent fire and and now that fire has stopped and they're growing into into older successional stages of of a boreal forest yeah but we're losing that habitat um it seems to correlate to me yeah. at least anyways. so so how do you how do you go into a a a wildland park and and bring fire back in yeah, and in some cases you can put higher intensity fire into into the landscape, but you have to be prepared to go back and reburn not long after uh-huh. uh give it a little bit to get some some vegetative growth and then maybe it won't burn with the high intensity that you had before but but it will burn spotily. And you can start to clean up some of that dead and down material and reopen it again, and also get some of the regen that's coming in. Because if then, you burn a mature pine stand, it's going to come back in. It's a species adapted for fire. Yeah. But it's not well adapted for frequent fire. Right. So if you can burn the regen before it starts uh, putting out cones uh, in, in you know that 20 or so year age age class, then then you're probably going to do fairly well. At, at knocking the pine back. But you have to be prepared to to spend that money to go back in. Mm-hmm. But if you manage the habitat, bottom line, the species will manage themselves.
0: So what do you think about, what role does like forest harvest have in trying to break up that that disturbance history? I mean, obviously with with forest harvest, we're removing forested areas and replanting forested areas. So we're not creating these more plains and... and, and but. What well, what kind of role do you think that
2: plays? We in? couldn't we couldn't have a better place to talk. We're sitting right in the middle of <laughs> of uh, Alberta's oldest forest management agreement. You know, yeah. It signed off in I think 1956. Uh, they've been operating with with very successful reforestation. Oh, we can look at what right.
0: sixty cup blocks right now that are well regenerated and mature, nearly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you can see evidence of of, of some of those early cuts that are, are well established and growing into to either a mixedwood forest or a pure conifer forest, uh we see the more recent cuts that, that you a know, tremendous amount of, of browse is, is available. Yeah. But I look on slopes like on the on the the peak where Athabasca Lookout is or even here on, on Solomon Mountain and, and this westing west facing slope, far too steep to harvest. Yeah. But historically was was kept burnt and wide open for and and you and made for prime ungulate habitat. Right. And, and so here's an example of, of you can select areas to burn and burn safely without risk of loss. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, still, still see areas of, of industrial logging going on and they aren't in conflict with each other. In fact, they complement each other. Right. Because these steep slopes uh, and, and in a forest management agreement area are, are, are not part of the planning cycle. Uh, if you go into a parks and protected area, I don't know if they got any disturbance patterns or plans for for renewing vegetation other than natural wildfire, mm-hmm. high intensity, high severity fire that has a long-term impact on the ecosystem, or are they looking at at, at habitat renewal on a on a much lower and, and less intense scale? Mm-hmm. And 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 if we don't start thinking about that and start doing it. Then then, our ecosystems are at serious risk in this case here, a number of these 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 steeper slopes, especially on the west and southwest slopes, can easily be burnt with without having any impact to to uh, forest management values certainly won't have a negative impact to a, a watershed values. It will have a dramatic and positive impact to to wildlife values and habitat mm mm-hmm. And, and, uh, we've got to wake up to that yeah, and, and start, start doing these treatments. There you go. Rick for environment minister.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Come on, go back to government, right? No, no, thank you. I am <laughs> not a politician. <laughs> why, is, why is it always the people who should be politicians never want to be politicians?
2: <laughs> um, I'm not going there.
0: <laughs> but, uh, well, that was, like I said, remember I was saying it, it doesn't take long to go an hour? Yeah. yeah, this is like 54 minutes already. Okay. Um, <laughs> so any final thoughts that you think that – I think we should do this again sometime because I think there's a lot more to be said.
2: Well, we rambled We rambled off on different directions. We but were think, talking the forest, uh, Mountain Legacy Project, but there's so much intertwined with it.
0: Right, and I think, I think there's so much more to go, so I think we should do this again sometime. Absolutely. And I'd be totally down to I, – I, I, I need to reset the scene. I'm going to throw this in the beginning here, at the very beginning. We never really explained how we got here. So this is, this is going to be the intro okay. now. So okay. I'm, 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 Let's grab Sonia. Come here. Yeah. So do you want to describe the situation here? How we got here? How we got here? Where we're sitting? Be more poetic than Rick was. Ooh, he kind of gave up. I'll try my best here. He just said we're on top of a mountain.
1: Well, <laughs> there's a specific mountain, so we're on top of uh, Mount Solomon. And uh, how we got here is we approached a peak by helicopter, (laughs) which is not what uh, people usually do when they reach the summit.
0: And did we land the helicopter?
1: We did not (laughs) land the helicopter.
0: (laughs) So we call the hover exit, right? Yes. And then much to the despair of the hikers we met 15 minutes later... yes (laughs) who walked for three hours to get here yeah how did you guys get here how long was your hike how come we didn't see
1: you on the trail (laughs) oh
0: we landed about 10 meters from this 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 bench that we're sitting on right now and yeah we're sitting on a bench that was put here a couple years ago memorial bench and underneath it there's a a geocache of notebooks of all the different people that come from all over the world not 50 yards away from where likely a grizzly bear was digging up ants (laughs) earlier this morning or something (laughs) Hopefully not this morning, but <laughs> <laughs> recently. Re- yeah, recently. recently enough, looking yeah. across uh
1: Brule Lake mm-hmm. and uh Black Cat Mountain and more of a, the Jasper area, and uh yeah, You're looking into the park, right, yep, yeah, the park's straight ahead there. you can yeah. see uh Rashmi at the corner, right, dropping off there,
0: it's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, can't complain. It's a pretty good job, really.
0: I really hope this audio works. <laughs> <laughs> if not, you're just going to have to come back. <laughs> it's been recording, but I don't know what it's going to sound like. We'll see. You we got these ridiculous Sawyer beetles flying by, yes. snapping their wings every other second, right? But I think, it, yeah, I think mm. it'll add right to it, right? supposed to be perfect. So Pristine, Rick? Pristine, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So do you have anything to add that you wanted to say Whew. to...
1: To all of that. To all of that. I mean,
0: you've <laughs> been you've been riding around with Rick yeah. for a month now, <laughs> listening to his ramblings. But you could probably speak from a, a researcher
2: perspective, or no? Sonia, far more <laughs> than me. I'm I'm a practitioner, but but she's she's a researcher, scientist, and and might be able to speak to to the finesse of that aspect far better than I could.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm still working on that research part. So uh, keep tuned, you know, give me four or five years and and then we'll do another podcast. But uh, well, I was listening into what you guys were saying and a lot of uh, what I really, really thought was really interesting is that a lot of the conversation went back to, you know, historical baselines and managing the landscape based on, you know, historical information and having that baseline in order to be able to manage for the future, mm-hmm. and so, a really, I guess a really interesting aspect and a really interesting concept that the lab that I'm um, working at at University of Victoria is uh, trying to explore, about to explore, uh, with this project now is the concept of novel ecosystems. And uh, have you heard about novel ecosystems? Nope. So yeah. Educate me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So novel ecosystems are basically ecosystems that have diverge so much from their historical trajectories that uh, you can restore them back to where they used to be before Uh and so you know before you had your pattern you had a disturbance whether it was natural or Mm human-made disturbance you know you had your first succession you had your pioneer species seral forest community young forest mature forest etc and then you know you could predict okay well this this area is going to grow to be this type of forest and so on and Mm -hmm. so on and so it was really useful for ecological restoration to to be able to look at that and and predict what type of forest uh, was in a specific area because mm-hmm. that way you know what species to be able to to introduce yeah. <laughs> quotation mark yeah <laughs> uh, of course, but with the change in climate um, and with the human population growing and growing and coming into these areas, it becomes more and more difficult to actually be able to predict what these ecosystems ecosystems are going to be like and so what we're trying to do with the mountain legacy project is to actually identify areas where uh, you have these novel ecosystems and so how how would we integrate these novel ecosystem into uh natural resource management what do we do about them do we let them continue on to an unknown trajectory mm-hmm. how do we manage them how, how do we manage for the future basically yeah and what does the future look like like? which is you know question that a lot of us are a lot of us are asking ourselves we just talked about an hour for that yeah pretty much (laughs) i'm not going to go in that anymore but i mean you could argue you know like rick was saying right is there such a thing there's there's no you know what's the initial ecosystem what does it look like what's your historical baseline you have to set it somewhere right in order to be able to to identify whether it's a new ecosystem and Mm -hmm. uh how how new is it also is another question
0: Um, At least understand the cyclic nature of it and that it's not a static system. Exactly.
1: So they're very dynamic systems. And I think that with the change in climate, they're going to keep on being even more dynamic. And so it becomes really hard for, uh, you know, what are you talking about? Researchers or government planning or Mm -hmm. uh, other companies to be able to, to predict what the future looks like. So what we're hoping to do with these images, so I'm sure... You and Rick have talked a lot about <laughs> these images. I've heard him describe uh the views of what it would look like historically. so what we're hoping to do with these images is actually be able to to create a tool that will allow us to well first of all identify these novel ecosystems and then be able to to actually tackle the big management question of how you know what are we gonna do about them and it's it is a little bit human centered like you know a lot of a lot of stuff we do is human centered right because we're saying we as humans are going to manage this land right yep. and we're going to manage for you know for all the other species that are on this land as well but you know us first but it seems like we've been doing that for 10,000 <laughs> yes, years exactly. already so, so <laughs> you know it's not a new it's not a new concept yeah. for sure but you're, I you think know.
0: if beavers and, and elk had thumbs, they would yeah. do the same thing. Well,
1: there are <laughs> ecosystem, uh, you know, ecosystem engineers. Oh, so. Wait, do beavers
0: have thumbs? I think they do actually. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they use what they can—teeth yeah. or tails. So yeah, so they they you know impact our ecosystem as well. So uh, that's that's the big. At least that's the that's where we're head in with uh this project but there's so many different toppings you can look at (laughs) toppings topics yeah sorry i got a cold here so (laughs) it probably doesn't (laughs) sound very well
0: we've been sitting in 30 degree (laughs) weather on the top of a mountain (laughs) with very little breeze for three hours now so i'll yeah i'll forgive you that
1: (laughs) um so yeah you could use like the the information provided by by these images by the historical uh, high resolution images and comparing them with the repeat that we're taking uh, that were taken over the last 20 years mm-hmm. uh you can look at fire patterns you can look at vegetation change you can look at snow cover a uh, really big one uh you can look at water watershed management well, issues even that
0: one photo we were looking at with the river clearly absolutely. there and then all of a sudden we look and the river is likely still there yeah but it's it's under a mature canopy of trees absolutely now, right? yeah and, and that, that has totally a different impact yeah that totally changes yeah. the amount of the amount of drainage you have, yeah. right, the amount of runoff, and it, it just completely changes everything downstream of it, right?
1: Yeah, and you can see sometimes there's even evidence of floods mm-hmm. and how the land- landscape has changed from that. So, y- you know, there's so many different aspects that you can look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, all, all we need is more grad students and people interested in it. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> So, sure. you know, if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear fire is a very popular topic. Yeah, so. no kidding.
0: There's a lot of my research going towards that. That's all yeah. that's for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah and what else could i say about, about i think you this summed work? it up pretty good i mean it's just it's really fantastic to be able to do this type of work and having the support from you know people like rick and mm-hmm. having the uh the alberta ministry of agriculture and Forests supporting us with the fire bases and the helicopters and you know uh, it was great to do a couple of hikes at the beginning of the season. Yeah, you feel much more connected, and you appreciate what the surveyors have done. Yeah, of course. Uh, retracing their steps and simply Imagine being their amazed. Their equipment was probably oh, yeah. a lot <laughs> heavier and a lot more <laughs> archaic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The boots. Sometimes you see, uh, you see some of them in the in the historical photos, and you look at what they were they were dressed with and what they were carrying. And Basically, got uh, dress shoes on. <laughs> yeah, almost <laughs> heavy coats that get wet with rain and yeah. then don't dry. And, uh, and so it gives you a different, you know, a very strong sense of appreciation for the type of work that it did mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the type of work that you're doing as well. And then having the helicopters, of course, makes everything much more easier and you can, you know, photograph many more stations. So it's uh, it's been quite a fantastic summer. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and uh, looking forward to, uh, well, many more. <laughs> Myself and a lot of
0: other people are definitely jealous of this job. It's, pretty, it's a pretty awesome opportunity to be able to literally jump with a helicopter from you know, from peak to peak, yep. taking photos, and every once in a while getting to hike up to one and yep. being able to have lunch at the top of a mountain. And now you get to say you did a podcast. Of I like, know at the top, top hal- of the elevation. mountain. I <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this was awesome. I can't. Uh, I can't thank you and Rick enough for inviting me to come out here and do this because it was yeah. I'd, I was worried, like I said before, I was worried I wouldn't find the find the time in the middle of <laughs> summer to open up and do a whole day out here. But this is I'm glad I did. This is awesome.
1: Well, thanks for joining along, and you got to see, you know, how we do things, and yep. uh, hopefully you spread the word, and more people are interested. And
0: I'll try. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the point of this, right? Rick, do you have any, any concluding
1: last words? words?
2: Well, you know, when you put it like you just did, you talk about hiking up to peaks and helicopters and beautiful vistas and warm sunny days. It's absolutely phenomenal when you're in the field, but the field is. Is like five percent of of what we're doing. No, it's it's never the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we spent we spent hundreds of hours at Library and Archives Canada, going through these glass plate collections, thousands of hours trying to figure out where the heck they are, mm. and pin the location, and then and then come out and, and spend detail uh, amount of time at that location trying to get the exact position of where that original camera is and be within sub meter where it was. Yeah. So the the technical aspects are huge, the benefits being out in the field phenomenal. Yeah, but there is a lot of background work, and so if you're Always. if you're interested in coming and pursuing this, get into that research aspect and prepare to spend a lot of lab time first.
0: Is there is there any job besides a literal just field work job that doesn't require that? My, even myself, right? Like I. I was hoping to have, you know, at least 20, 25% of my time in the bush. I'm lucky if it's five, it's, it's, you know what I mean? Like I get the opportunity, but it's, I think that's where the real difference is made though. Right. That's where the decisions are made and the, and the, and the findings are, are concluded and, and, and turned into management decisions. Right. So I think, yeah, it's a necessary evil <laughs> that office work.
1: Sure. Uh, what I was saying is that you need to have the mix of both, like, uh, like Rick said, like if you know the field work is the fun part, but uh for sure then after you take the pictures and you gotta bring them back in the lab and align the photographs and publish them, do the analysis. So yeah, for sure. It's uh it's a, yeah, very well rounded project, i yeah. like to say.
0: Well, you guys uh I'm definitely jealous. Nice work. <laughs> <laughs> you made a you made a nice job for yourself here.
2: I think <laughs> I think it's something that, that the more it catches on and gets used, the more valuable it becomes. And and I think over time, it, it has the potential to change uh, our perspective in all disciplines and perhaps even the management and direction we're going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. I think that's a good way to end it. Thanks a lot, guys. Awesome.
2: Have a great day. Mike <laughs> Martino.
0: <laughs> What's our call sign? Echo, Echo Charlie. <laughs>